we are journeying through the book of Acts this fall. Uh, we are about nine weeks in. This will carry us up until Advent uh, and the week after Thanksgiving that will begin. And so we are uh, looking at the birth, the inception of, the formation of, and the spreading of the church. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, wrote Acts as a, as a part two sequel to a two-part story that began in the Gospel of Luke, and he's showing us the mission of Jesus in the world and how that mission of Jesus continues in and through the church. And so, the apostles were commissioned in the first few verses of Acts to take this gospel message, the gospel message of a resurrected rabbi from Jerusalem, take it, share it in Jerusalem, uh, tell people about this Jesus, tell people about what he's done for you, tell people about how he's conquered sin and death, and share this good news, uh, and start in Jerusalem, and then let it trickle out into Judea and Samaria, and then he says, to the ends of the earth. That's the scope of the mission that the apostles are given in the very first few verses of Acts. So we've been journeying through the, the book of Acts, seeing how the church is uh, growing, forming, and beginning to spread in Jerusalem, but we haven't really made it outside of Jerusalem yet. The only known church in the world this time is in Jerusalem. All the believers in Jesus at this time are in Jerusalem and it has not trickled out. Well, in our story tonight, we are going to be in Acts chapter 8. In the first half of Acts chapter 8, the gospel begins to trickle just north of Jerusalem into a town in an area called Samaria. And the Samaritans and Jews had bad blood, but the gospel does go there. Peter goes there and shares the gospel with the Samaritans and there's converts. There's a Samaritan Pentecost that takes place. The Spirit descends on the, the Samaritans there. And so the gospel is beginning to trickle just north. That's the first part of Acts chapter 8. But then the second half of Acts chapter 8, the gospel begins to spread south, and not just a little bit south of Jerusalem, but where it goes and how it goes there and to who it goes to is the point of our passage tonight. The, the apostles are being persecuted by this man named Saul. They're on the run, but even as they're on the run, even as they're being scattered, the Lord is sending the gospel forth uh, from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, and we'll look at that tonight. So the gospel is spreading. That's the point of this little section of Acts. So if you'll turn with me in Acts chapter 8 to verse 26 on your phones and your Bibles, or it'll be on the screen as well. Verse 26 says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. This is from Isaiah 53 that we read in our call to worship. It says this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? Meaning, where his, where's his family? What, what came after him? Where's his offspring? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet Isaiah say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. 
And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they had come out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. This is an insane story. Uh, I want to break it down for us real quick as we dive into it. Um, But like we said, the gospel has begun in the beginning of this chapter to trickle just north of Jerusalem. It goes into Samaria. And then in this section, it's now headed south. But it's not just that it's headed a little bit south. It's actually headed out of Israel and actually even farther than you can imagine. And so the story is about the gospel spreading. And here's what happens. Philip is called by the Spirit in the opening lines to go south of Jerusalem on the road that leads from Jerusalem down to Gaza. It's a well-worn path, a a, a busy highway it would have been from Jerusalem down to Gaza, another major city Gaza was on the Mediterranean coast. And so Philip is headed that way, and he has no idea why he's headed there at the beginning. He doesn't know. He's just saying, hey, the Lord is sending me here. The Spirit is guiding me here. I'm supposed to be obedient. I'm going. Maybe the Lord is having me go preach the gospel to Gaza, which is fine. It's out of Israel, but he doesn't really know the context or what's going on. He's just listening to the Lord as the Lord is sending him on this path. And then the Lord says, on his path to Gaza, he says, the Lord says to Philip, "Uh, see that chariot over there? Not like sitting on the side of the road, because chariots didn't, you know, need gas fill up. So see that chariot that's moving down the road? I want you to go run up to it and stay by it. Okay, so just use your imagination here for a minute. This is, this is it's not just comical, it's, it's kind of, um, it makes the story uh, even more somewhat am- amazing. Because think about this. <laughs> this chariot is moving, and Philip is walking down the road to Gaza, and the Lord says, hey, see that chariot up there? Go catch it. <laughs> and so Philip just starts... <laughs> Okay, I guess, okay. Now what? Just go stay by it. Okay, didn't know I was, you know, running from Jerusalem to Gaza, but here, here we are. And now he gets beside the chariot, and he hears uh, the, the eunuch inside the chariot reading out loud, because that's how you read in the ancient world. You always read out loud. And so he hears reading, and I'm just imagining this picture. The eunuch has his scroll open reading from Isaiah, and he looks to the side, and there's this Jewish man running beside his chariot, not saying anything. <laughs> like, that's funny. Okay, that's hilarious. Like, hey, and he goes, you know, can I help you? He's like, no, just, just keep reading. You know, just, I'm just going. And the man just starts reading. He's reading in Isaiah. And then Philip knows, okay, now's the time to insert yourself again. He says, hey, do you, do you, do you understand what you're reading? <laughs> you know? And he goes, no, I don't. How can I unless someone explains it to me? And he goes, well, you know, if I could, if I could get in, you know, maybe I could explain it to you. So I just, the whole thing is hilarious. So he does, he gets in the chariot, he explains the passage of Isaiah 53 to him and how it's pointing to Jesus. The man then places faith in Jesus. He's converted. And then immediately he says, I must be baptized right now. They see some water on the side of the road which means they had probably gotten closer to the coast by this point. And he's baptized, and we're told literally that they go into the water together. It's one of the craziest little moments in the book of Acts, and it just kind of gets passed over. They go into the water together, and then they come out, and look what it says at the end of the story. Uh, Commands the chariot to stop, and when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. Philip enters this, like, interdimensional portal that, like, Dr. Strange has with the orange circles. You know, like, he comes out of the water and just disappears into another place. 
and he disappears to a town called Azotus, which is about 20 miles north on the coast. He's just gone, and Philip just goes through the portal, and then he just finds himself, okay, that was crazy, and now he just starts sharing the gospel there in those towns in Caesarea. So it's like, what in the world is happening here? Philip just chased down a chariot, converts a man from Africa, baptizes him on the spot, and then disappears into another town. It's an insane story. This man gets converted, and this is the point that the passage is making. This is how the Lord begins to spread the gospel out of Jerusalem. And as we break it apart, as we dive into the passage and see what the Lord has for us here tonight, please understand this passage is not about how we might learn better techniques to take the gospel to our world. Like, this, this passage is not about you learning how to chase down cars on 12th Avenue. Like, this, this passage is not about techniques to share the gospel. This passage is about how the Lord intends to take his gospel to the world and who he's taking it to. This passage is not about man, it's about God. This passage is about the Lord and his kingdom and how it's spreading, how he intends to spread it and who he intends to spread it to and through. That's the point of the story. So the first thing we should be asking about this passage, the first thing that would have been popping off the page for any first century Jewish reader of this passage, certainly the first thing that would have popped off of the details of the story when Philip gets back to Jerusalem to share this story, like, guys, I went through this portal, you're not going to believe it, but but get over that. You're not going to believe who the Lord had me share the gospel with. The first question is, is who is this gospel message for? Who is it going out to? Who is it that receives the message of the kingdom? And the passage answers that question. And here's the answer to who is the gospel message for. It's this. The gospel is for people who are very different from you. And I know there's a buzzword these days, and I don't want to let the, the, the buzzwordiness of it steal it from the reality of the word. But in the truest sense of the word, in the most robust sense of the word, not the modern, shallow version of the word, you need to understand this. The gospel is far more inclusive than you can ever imagine. The gospel is far more inclusive than you would ever dare imagine. The gospel is for people who are not like you. It includes them. Social studies may tell you that in like the development of religions, in like a humanistic view of people, the sociolo- sociology would tell you religion is developed. You know, Freud says religion uh, was an opioid for the masses. It's, it's created by people in a certain culture to hold that culture together, to keep the people together in that culture a particular way, to not let it change. Religion is meant to hold the culture intact. Social studies would tell you, if you look at just some of the data, what would be assumed is, well, Europeans and white North Americans developed Christianity, and South Asian cultures developed Hinduism, and Far Eastern cultures developed Buddhism, and Middle Eastern cultures and Northern Africa cultures developed Islam, that every culture just develops a religion in order to keep the people in that particular culture intact and in its lanes to not let the culture get overrun. Laman Sane, he's an African professor at Yale, points out something in many articles. He's written a, a book about this. And many others point this out. Rodney Stark points this out as another famous church historian and, and, and church uh, scholar. But all of the major religions except Christianity, 
all of the major religions except Christianity, if you look at where their current population centers are, if you look at where most of the adherents of any particular religion are, they are all still near where they started. They haven't left the culture or the geography of the culture or the geography that started them. 96% of all Muslims live in the Middle East and in North Africa and in South Asia. There are only 4% only of the world's Muslims live in Europe, North America, South America, China, and the Far East. 96% of Muslims still live around where it started. 88% of Buddhists still live in East Asia. 98% of Hindus still live in India or South Asia. And again, this is just like looking at the data, looking at the statistics. But when you get to Christianity, it is totally different. It's the only truly worldwide religion. 25% of Christians are in Central and South America. 22% are in Africa. 15% are in Asia, and that number is massively growing. Only 12% of all the Christians in the world are in North America, and close to 20% are in Europe. There is no other religion that even resembles anything close to that. The Christianity truly is the only worldwide religion because it cuts across cultures and it cuts across lines and it cuts across race and it cuts across generations. Richard Baucom, who's a scholar at Cambridge, very widely respected. Read anything you can by Richard Baucom. He's, he's brilliant. He says, in looking at this same phenomenon, he says this, Almost certainly Christianity exhibits more cultural diversity than any other religion in the world. And that, he says, must say something about the religion itself. That something is different. Even if you're not a Christian, even if you're not a believer in Jesus, if you just look at the data of what the world would tell you of how this, of, of major world religions, something is different about Christianity because it actually is the only truly worldwide religion. Now, certainly you could make cultural and societal arguments for how and why it spread in different ages and across the different places, but you have to at least acknowledge what Baucom also says. There's something different about the religion itself, and it's this. It's that it is far more inclusive than any other religion on the planet. It cuts across social lines, it cuts across racial lines, it cuts across cultural lines, it cuts across economic lines, it cuts across political lines. The gospel is for people who are very different than you. And the Bible actually celebrates that. Other religions would not celebrate that. The Bible is actually saying, yes, that's, that's the point. Every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, yes, that is actually the, the mission, that it, it would include people like you and people very much not like you. And here is Philip taking the gospel to a black African eunuch. Not an Israelite, not a Jew. He's taking the gospel to a black African eunuch. That's what is happening in this passage. Showing the reader, oh my goodness, this little thing that started in Jerusalem, yes, it's beginning to trickle out, but it is beginning to trickle out and cut across lines that no one ever dreamed possible. Because the gospel is for people who are very different from you. But if you keep pulling on that thread, you might see that and hear those stats and go, oh wow, I like that about Christianity. I like that it kind of you know, cuts across and it's for people that are different. But here's, here's if you really go deeper with that reality and you pull on that thread. It's not just that the gospel is for people that are different than you. The gospel is for people who you can't stand. The gospel is for people who you wouldn't choose to hear it if you were in charge. 
The gospel is for people who you would maybe choose to keep out. That's not unique to the modern human experience. This is what happens to Jonah in the book of Jonah. It's why he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He has, he's a xenophobe. Like, I have my, I'm an Israelite. I don't want the gospel message. I don't want the message of God's mercy and the kingdom of God to go to the Ninevites. I hate them. They are different from us. They've oppressed us. I don't like those people over there, so he runs to Tarshish. That's the whole point of the book. The gospel is not just for you. The message of the kingdom is not just for you. It's for people that you would choose to keep out. Now, Philip is not having that reaction, but many, many Jews and many, many Jewish converts in Jerusalem at this time would have had that reaction. Whoa, 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 whoa. We love this message of the Messiah growing in Jerusalem, but wait, wait, wait. You took it to who? God sent you to who on the road to Gaza? The gospel goes here to someone who could not have been more excluded from Judaism and from Philip. He would have been on the outside, excluded from them. And Philip is sent to him to tell him how included he is in this kingdom of God because the gospel is far more inclusive than you can imagine. This man was a eunuch, which means he would have been sexually altered. He would have been castrated. Maybe by choice, not always the case. Maybe he chose to do it for himself to climb a social ladder, but probably it was done to him. He was sexually altered. He was black. He was not a Jew by birth. Literally the exact opposite of anyone in Jerusalem and anyone in Jerusalem's thoughts of who this kingdom message might be for. He was on the outside And the spirit comes to Philip and says, hey, Philip, see that sexually altered, culturally and racially different person than you? I want you to run to him. And I want you to tell him about the gospel of the resurrected Messiah. And I want you to bring him in. And I want you to tell him that the message of the gospel is for him too. Run along that chariot to bring him in. Now, up until this chapter... The only convert to the gospel so far, the only convert to Christianity so far, has been in Jerusalem. Now, yes, there were people who had traveled to Jerusalem for the festivals, like the festival of Pentecost, but all the converts uh, to Christianity up until this point have stayed in Jerusalem. They have not gone back home. They've stayed with family in Jerusalem, and the church is growing. 10,000 people, 15,000 people. And so only in Jerusalem are there converts. And then a few verses before this, there's a little trickle up to Samaria to the north. But now we don't just have the gospel leaving Jerusalem, being sent out of Jerusalem. We have the gospel going to an Ethiopian, which any ancient Roman or ancient Greek source, first century secular source, will tell you that ancient Greeks and ancient Romans considered Ethiopia to be, by definition, the ends of the earth. Like, we don't, we don't know or care about a world in that direction past Ethiopia. Ethiopia in the ancient world was kind of near Egypt in northern Africa, and that was the extent, that was the end of the earth to the, the ancient Roman or the ancient Greek. And so here we have P- Philip being sent to an Ethiopian who's from the ends of the earth, being sent to convert him, knowing that this man is going back to the very place, to the very edges, to the very border of where the apostles were being sent to anyway the ends of the earth. So let me connect this for you. The reader of Acts knows that the mission of the church is to be Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And now we have a man being sent, being from the ends of the earth, being converted. This sexually altered, sexual and racial outsider, this Ethiopian eunuch, is how the Lord is accomplishing, beginning to accomplish the taking of the gospel to the ends of the earth. 
This is who the Lord chooses to send to Africa. This is the Lord's first messenger to the ends of the earth. Now, there will be others as Acts goes along. But this is his first messenger to the ends of the earth. The gospel is headed to Africa. Which, by the way, has its own rich church history on its own. But let me also tell you this and connect some historical dots for you. This is not an exaggeration. You and I would not be in this room if the gospel doesn't go to Africa. And here's how that's possible. Because church history would show us and other church fathers would write about this Ethiopian eunuch who goes back to northern Africa and begins to share the gospel and plant churches and convert his people. And so the gospel goes to Africa because of this man. And then just a few centuries later, the gospel in northern Africa will convert a man named Augustine, St. Augustine. St. Augustine will go on to become not just the father of what many would say, uh, the father of modern philosophy in the fourth century, all the way up until the modern day, but also the, certainly the father of church and theology in the Western world. <laughs> that every church father since Augustine is rooted in Augustine's work. Every church father, Martin Luther, father of the Protestant Reformation, like why we are here, why we're not all Catholic, because of Martin Luther. He was an Augustinian monk. He was steeped in Augustine's work. John Calvin, Institutes of the Christian Religion, massive magnum opus work, shapes Western theology for centuries, quotes Augustine more than any other writer in his magnum opus work, all because Philip is sent to this cultural and sexual outsider. The Ethiopian eunuch is responsible for bringing the gospel to Africa. If the gospel doesn't go to Africa, we aren't here. Now, we can read that, we can hear that and go, oh, man, that's kind of cool. Like, look at, you know, kind of the, the way that the Lord has been writing this story for thousands of years. But if you actually understand what is happening on the page here, it's also offensive. Because <laughs> let me tell you what this is saying. Let me tell you, like, let me, let me give the slap that this passage is meant to give a little bit. Let me tell you the slap that the first century Jews in Jerusalem would have felt when they heard this story. Is it possible that the Lord may be scheming and orchestrating a plan to bring his kingdom to a more beautiful and more complete fruition in this city, and it may be through someone who you think should never be brought in in the first place? Like someone who you can't stand, God actually intends to bring the gospel to them and then through them in a more powerful way than you would ever even imagine because you don't even want them in in the first place. The slap that I felt of this this week, and it's a little bit comical, but it is so real, is I was trying to imagine what would, what would it take, like, what would, it, what would that be like? Like, I've been called to 12 South minister in this part of the city in this, in this time. What would the equivalent be? And it's not even close to this level of equivalency, but who would, who would I be just appalled at the Lord saying, I'm actually going to bring the gospel to and through these people, uh, and it's going to impact your neighborhood? And I thought, it could not be more offensive if the Lord said, hey, I want to bring the gospel into 12 South in a beautiful way through the bachelorette parties. <laughs> like, I'm going to have the white boots be the ones that actually share the gospel in this, in this part of the neighborhood, and they're actually going to do it better than you. They're actually going to have a greater impact than you would in this city and on this street. Like, can you imagine being... Hearing the story and understanding, wait, 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 the Lord wants to take the message of the kingdom to and through that man? 
Can you imagine the Lord may be very interested in taking the gospel to and through like a Republican or a Democrat? Can you imagine him saying, hey, I actually want the gospel to go to them and then through them someone that you find incredibly annoying? They're not here tonight, so I can say this. Can you imagine the Lord saying, I want to bring the gospel to and through like your in-laws? <laughs> like you can't stand them. And, you, and I'm going I'm to actually take the gospel to them and then through them in a powerful way, and you don't even want them in. You don't even want them in the circle. Can you imagine the gospel going to and then through someone that you hate but are secretly very jealous of? Like I, I, I scroll through their Instagram reels all the time because I hate them, but really I want their life. I'm so mad that they've had the life that I think I deserve, and so I obsess over them because I hate them, but really I'm, I'm obsessed with they have a better life than the life that I wish I had. And the Lord's saying, yeah, I actually want to take the gospel to them and then through them in a really powerful way. Because the gospel is far more inclusive than you could possibly imagine. It's for people that are very different than you, and it's for people who you can't stand. That's who the gospel's for. And then the last question of the passage is this. If that's who receives the message, if that's who it's for, what is the message? What message does Philip bring to this eunuch that captures him? What message brings this Ethiopian in? What is the gospel message for this eunuch and for us? Well, first, what do we know about this Ethiopian eunuch? Well, one, he was from Ethiopia, rocket science. That means that it was a thousand miles from his home to Jerusalem, a six-month journey minimum. So we know that this man is committed. He's deeply committed. He's spiritually hungry for some, for, for, to find something. He's willing to travel almost a year to go get some spiritual answers. He's traveled to Jerusalem for, to the temple. We also know in this passage, in verse 27, you can throw this back up there, says this. Verse 27 says, he was a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. Candace was a titled position, and so he is the, he is the court official of Candace. He was, he was the CFO of the royal family of Ethiopia. He, he ma managed their treasury, which is why he was a eunuch, by the way, because you don't get to that position of the inner circle of managing the family's wealth, this, this royal family's wealth, without being undyingly trustworthy. So in, in order for us to trust you, we have to castrate you, which means two things. One, you won't make any advances on any of the, the royal women, but two, it also means you don't get to have a family of your own. We need to make sure that all of your allegiance is to this family. This is now your family. You're not going to be stealing from the royal treasury to provide for your own family or to pad your own family's pockets because this is your family now. You don't have a family. So this eunuch is, he's got means, he's got access, he's got power, he's got commitment to figuring out spiritual things. This man is at the top of the social ladder, he's at the top of the financial ladder. But then also we know this about him, he can read which was very rare in the first century. Hardly anybody could read themselves in that day. So he's got education, he's got intellect, he's got sophistication. So think about this now. He's got power, he's got money, he's got education, he's got sophistication, he's got access. This man is incredibly capable. 
He's made it to the top. He's brilliant. He's educated. He's wealthy. So here's the question. Why in the world is this Ethiopian eunuch at this position in his life, why in the world did he travel to Jerusalem? If you knew his life back home, why in the world would he leave that? Which, by the way, when you leave your post for almost a year, you run the, the great risk of having someone replace you. So he's risking everything by going to Jerusalem too. The answer is that there was an enormous emptiness inside of him. A man that has everything still is feeling like there's got to be something out there to fill me and complete me and give me an identity that I don't currently have. In a family-dominated, family-centered world where people got their identity from their family and their attachment to their family, this man has no family, which means he has no legacy, which means he has no lasting identity after he dies. He has no offspring to pass on the name to. He's got money, he's got power, he's got intellect, but he doesn't have enough. He doesn't know who he is. So can you imagine, like use your, use your imagination for just a moment, and this is extra biblical, but it's fun to imagine. Go to the conversation in Ethiopia before this man uh, sets out for the journey to go to Jerusalem. He's, he's gathered his staff, he's gathered the royal family, and he says, hey, um, I'm headed to Jerusalem. I'm going to be gone about a year. I'm taking the chariot, I'm taking the entourage, I'm taking the staff, I'm taking the people, the servants, people that I need to go, and I'm going. Why are you going to Jerusalem? There's this God of the Jews that has a temple there that I really want to meet. Hey, dude, um, we have gods and temples here. Who is this Yahweh, and what are you talking? You, you're going to give up what? You're going to risk what to go meet who? What are you talking about, Ethiopian eunuch man? Like, what, what are you talking about? And he would say, i got to go and see. I've heard about this God of the Jews. I've heard about this temple. I have to go meet him. I have to see if there's something there to satisfy me, if there's something there to give me an identity. And then it gets even worse for this man. It gets even darker for this man, because what does he find when he gets to Jerusalem? Every commentator on this passage agrees that this man would not have known this until he got to Jerusalem. But when he gets to Jerusalem and gets to the temple and he gets to the outer gates and he's going in to meet Yahweh and to understand who is this God of the Jews, he gets to the temple gates and he's actually stopped at the door and says, you actually can't come in. You're not allowed in here. And there was lots of Levitical law from the Old Testament that we're not going to get into, but that prevented certain people from coming in and meeting with Yahweh, from being in the presence of the Lord with God's people. And so they were barred until they could perform certain sacrifices or perform certain rituals in order to get clean again. And so there were people who were barred, who were rejected seasonally because of their, the status or the state of their life, but certain people were rejected permanently. And eunuchs were one of them. Because you've been sexually mutilated, because you've been sexually altered, you actually can't come in here. I know you've traveled a thousand miles. I know you're curious about this God of the Jews, but we can't let you in. He was permanently rejected because of his sexual state. So after this long journey, he's rejected at the door. And then here comes Philip on this man's despairing trip home. You can imagine the man leaving Jerusalem on the chariot. This is, if this man was on a chariot, this encounter with Philip is not long after he's been rejected at the temple door. His head is low, certainly. I came all this way and I was rejected even here. 
And then along comes Philip barging into this man's life as he's reading Isaiah 53. You know what he reads in Isaiah 53? We have a quoted section. It doesn't mean that's all he read in Isaiah 53. But the quoted section of Isaiah 53 that he's reading out loud is verse 32 and 33 of Acts chapter 8. Here's, here's the quote. Here's what he says. It says, like sheep, this is from Isaiah 53, like sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Okay, before we talk about how the eunuch would have heard this passage, what's the, what did that passage just say from Isaiah? Isaiah has this very famous section of Isaiah um, known as the, the servant songs, the suffering servant songs of Isaiah. And listen to what he says. Listen to what Isaiah says about this mysterious suffering servant, this mysterious he in the passage. He gets slaughtered, but he didn't fight it. And in the slaughtering that he received, this mysterious he from Isaiah 53, the slaughtering he received wasn't just. This man was a victim of injustice. He suffered humiliation, and in the humiliation that he suffered, he didn't reject the slaughtering. He actually received the slaughtering, laid himself down for it. Knowing that it was unjust, knowing that it was humiliating, he laid himself down for it. Oh, and by the way, last line of the quoted passage, he died without any offspring. That's when it, where is his generation? He died without a family. So you can imagine the eunuch reading this passage of this mysterious person, and the eunuch reading it and hearing about one who was humiliated, slaughtered, mutilated, had no offspring to show, nothing to pass on. He was taken off the face of the earth with no offspring, no generation to come after him. Think the eunuch might be interested in this mysterious person? Wait, wait, some, who, who is this mutilated man who had something horrific done to him, to alter him, and he had no offspring to show? Who is this man? So, of course, when Philip shows up and says, do you understand what you're, re you're reading? You know, he's running beside the chariot. Do you understand this? You can imagine the eunuch saying, please will someone tell me, is Isaiah the prophet talking about himself or is he talking about someone else? Who is this person that Isaiah is talking about? Please tell me about this man. And Philip says, someone you're not going to believe. Okay, so this is a little strange, but the New Testament was written in Greek. When the New Testament quotes an Old Testament passage, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but there was a Greek version of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint. So when the New Testament is quoting the Old Testament, it quotes from the Greek Old Testament. And so that's the translation we have right here of Isaiah 53 is a Greek translation of Isaiah 53. But Isaiah was actually written in Hebrew. And the original translation compared to the Greek translation can be just slightly different. Same meaning, same essence, but some words can be just slightly translated differently because of the different translations, different languages. When Isaiah 53 in the original language is closing out this section, it does not say in the Hebrew this, his life was taken away from this earth. That's how our quoted portion ends of Isaiah 53. His life was taken away from this earth. That's not what it says. It says this. He was cut off from the land of the living. Literally the same word for what would happen to a eunuch. This man was cut off. Why do you think the eunuch's drawn to this passage? 
And then what do you think Philip is able to tell the eunuch about this man? I know you were rejected in Jerusalem. I know you've been sexually altered and sexually mutilated. I know you don't know who you are, and I know you're all alone. I know you've been cut off. But let me tell you of the one who was cut off for you. Let me tell you of the one whom Isaiah was speaking about who was rejected for you. Let me tell you of the one from Isaiah 53 whose wounds can heal your wounds. Let me tell you of the one who died without physical offspring so that he could welcome you into his countless number of spiritual offspring. Let me tell you of the one who was cut off for you and now has brought you in and given you an inheritance and given you a legacy and given you an identity that can never be taken from you. Ethiopian eunuch, place your faith in him and hide yourself in him, the one who was also cast out and cut off for you. I imagine this Ethiopian eunuch sitting there with Philip in the scroll and Philip saying, hey, turn that scroll one more page. Because in Isaiah 56, just three chapters later, literally like one page turned later, one scroll roll later, Isaiah 56 is giving this image, this beautiful vision of the messianic kingdom to come when the suffering servant comes and does his work, what the kingdom will be like when that king sits on the throne. And Isaiah 56 says, says that one day eunuchs will be cast out no more and brought into the kingdom of God. The Philip is literally saying to him, you're living this promise. I'm here to tell you that the suffering servant has come and that kingdom is here and you are cast out no more. You are not without a family anymore. See, it's into the very place of this man's deepest shame and darkest emptiness that Philip says, Jesus came to cover that place. Jesus came to meet you in that place. That you're hanging your head, leaving Jerusalem because you've been cast out again. And you're looking for something. And I'm here to tell you about the Messiah who's come looking for you. That you were cast out. You were cut off. Let me tell you about one who was cast out and cut off for you. You came looking for the God of the Jews. Let me tell you about the God of the Jews who came looking for you. And this man says in verse 36, after Philip presents to him who this Jesus is, verse 36, of course he says this, see, here's water, Philip, stop the chariot. He says, what prevents me from being baptized? In other words, I don't want to, I don't want to wait another minute before I'm joined to that man. See, and this is what makes Christianity even more unique it is far more inclusive than you can ever imagine with all of its inclusivity that cuts across cultural and racial and cultural barriers. With all of the lines that it crosses and all the people that it welcomes in, in its inclusivity, Christianity is also radically exclusive too. See, in its ex inclusivity, it actually demands an exclusivity. Philip doesn't say to the Ethiopian eunuch when he presents to him who this Jesus is, he doesn't say, you know, this Jesus guy is great, but go back to Ethiopia and just kind of figure it out with any of those gods back home. I'm sure they'll be fine for you. 
Go back to any of those temples and worship any God you want to worship and go find yourself. If you're really looking for yourself, you'll find him maybe back in Ethiopia. Good luck finding who you really are back home. I'm sure one of the gods in one of those temples will meet you there. That's not what Philip says at all. Philip leads this man to a conversion. Philip leads this man to say, no, 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 no. Jesus is the one you're looking for, and nothing else will cut it. (laughs) It's the same gospel message for us today. With all of its inclusivity and all the people that it welcomes, the exclusivity of Christianity is the same. It says, I know you're empty, and I know you've been cast out. I know you've been rejected. I know you've done unspeakable things, and I know unspeakable things have been done to you. And there's one who knows it more than you because he was mutilated and he was cast out and he was cut off to bring you in. Would you, in these closing songs, receive that message the way the eunuch did? Because you remember the eunuch in his emotional state and hanging his head and how he's, where the, the place where he's at. Did you hear how he leaves this interaction? Did you hear how the interaction ends? He gets dipped into the water and then he comes up out of the water and, and Philip goes through Dr. Strange's, you know, portal and is gone. And Philip doesn't, or, and the eunuch doesn't care. Did you hear what's, he doesn't go, well, what, was that a dream? What just happened? No. Do you know what happens? It says he went on his way rejoicing because of the message that he had heard. Would you dare to believe tonight that the place of your darkest shame, like present tense darkest shame, the place where you are inadequate, the place where things have been done to you, the place where the tape rolls and the place where the arrows are hurled, the place of the deepest emptiness tonight, would you dare to believe that Jesus came to be cut off for you in that place and cover that place for you, meet you in that place? And that by his wounds, you're healed. Let's pray. Jesus, Jesus who was cast out for us, Jesus who was rejected for us, Jesus who was cut off for us, who was mutilated for us, you welcomed in this sexually altered man to say to us, not only is the gospel far more inclusive than we can imagine, but the gospel is far better news than we ever dare believe. It meets us in our darkest place, and the gospel goes to and through people who receive this news with joy. Would you restore to us tonight, maybe for the first time, the joy of this news for us? And we ask all this in your name, Jesus.